Hermione Granger and the Silent Country. From There Is Nothing to Fear by Santissi Day. Read by Sam Gabriel. Based on the works of J.K. Rowling. Chapter 25 All That We Need Almost as quickly as Hermione could understand what was happening, it stopped. She was off balance when she landed, and fell unceremoniously on her rear, but she only heard a little. A poorly enchanted portkey might have done worse, thrown her to the ground, maybe cracked her head, but the fault was all hers in this case. Once Hermione felt she had recovered, she surveyed her surroundings. All around her were oak and sycamore, and other trees whose names she didn't know. The forest floor was thick with undergrowth and everywhere there were tangled branches and gnarled, twisted roots. A pale, sickly mist crept across the ground and rose here and there, so that Hermione couldn't see more than a few hundred feet in front of her. Only a couple feet away from her point of arrival was a basket, a red-and-white checkerboard cloth draped over its top. Inside was a disc of blue-veined Cheshire Cat cheese, a couple of apples and a tin of self-serving pie— eel, mushroom, and onion according to a handwritten card that somebody had included. And there was an empty cup as well, which, so far as Hermione could tell, bore no enchantments, but that was fine. The water-making charm was still a little advanced for her, but Hermione had never heard of anybody getting cholera from the Black Lake, and anyway, if she did get sick, there was always Madame Pomfrey. Beneath all these was a purple sleeping bag, which compressed and refolded itself after Hermione ceased her investigation. Hermione cast a charm to sweep away the dust from her robes, then lifted her wand and cast the muffling charm. No sooner had she done so than she heard Dimitri's voice. Thank God. I was soon to wonder if you would throw at all that spell. Just barely, Hermione resisted the urge to jump. Dimitri, she said, with equal parts shock and annoyance. Yeah, somewhat. Hermione frowned. She hadn't been warned about this, but it was obvious that this was why she'd been drilled on the muffling charm. What are you doing here? And why hadn't Fleur said anything? Maybe don't look around so crazy for me, yes, Dimitri said. The eye, it is still seeing what you do, just not hearing. Okay, Hermione said, and she began to walk forward. I'll ask again, why are you here? "'Because I am touching Porky, of course,' Dimitri said. "'Fortunately, there is the countdown. "'I did not think there would be Porky, and almost I was thrown off, "'but at least I did not need to be holding it in the very same instant as you do, and no later.' "'All right, fine, but why did you decide to touch a Porky and come here with me?' "'I am assisting you. "'Invisibly, of course. "'So do not ask me to cast any spell that cannot hide the light.' "'Why?' "'Because they may see spell-light from nowhere, and no another is with you,' Hermione shook her head. "'No, I mean, why are you helping me?' Flower insisted.' "'Did she?' asked Hermione, and she sighed. "'Of course she had. "'I have been made to understand that should anything awful happen to you, I would be skinned alive.' "'Oh.' "'Once she adjusted for the obvious exaggeration, that was a little sweet, actually, but still a little frustrating. "'It wasn't Hermione that had been carried away by pixies in the second task. 
after the murders, uh, Fleur grew very more concerned with you, thinking that Riddle might put the three of you apart, and knowing it was so that I had an invisibility cloak, she ganged the press upon me to assist you just in case that if there was a separation in the third task. All right, maybe it was a little reasonable to worry for her after two people had been killed. Can they read my lips as we're talking? Hermione asked. No, the spell has two components. One to obscure voices, and one to obscure very little the lips. It will be that you are to make a mumbling to yourself, and so they will think probably. Probably? If they pay very much attention, someone may tell there is problem. We can decide excuse later. Hermione nodded at that, then turned her attention to the problem of finding the Triwizard Cop. Holding her wand ramrod straight, she began the first of a slow series of incantations. Virgula Pantra, Virgula Stana, Virgula Stibia. Her wand dangled loosely from her fingers, but it didn't so much as twitch, so Hermione abandoned the attempt. The Trouser Cup had doubtlessly been warded against such basic forms of detections, and even if it hadn't, there would have been other reasons to expect failure, and there was an art to the dousing charm, and which she had only recent experience, and she was searching for only a small object rather than a load, and alloys were trickier to douse than pure metals. It was not for nothing that most wizards left dousing alone in favor of more dependable trades. But Hermione knew the spell, however little she had used it before, and there was no reason not to try, just in case she got some sort of result, even a little one. Point me, she said, repeating a spell that she and Fleur had found in the Hogwarts library, and her wand, resting flat upon her hand, turned suddenly to the right. Did that spell find the cup? asked Dimitri. No, the only thing that the four-point spell will find is north, true north, Hermione clarified, since wizards had compasses as well. There are a few charms that I'm going to try anyway, but the Trouser Cup has probably been warded against them, if they'll work for me anyway, and we'll make better time if I do something else at the same time. There's no reason that my feet can't move and my eyes can't watch while I try whatever spells occur to me. We'd be better off without this damned fog, for instance, Hermione said. And with a twirl and a thrust of her wand, she encanted Ventus. A cool wind blew from the tip of her wand, but as soon as she let the spell go, the mist began to roll back, and Hermione swore. This will be much easier if I were more familiar with divination, which isn't bad at finding things, but I've never had the patience for it, Hermione said, speaking her thought process aloud for Dimitri's benefit. I like arithmancy much better, but I have to admit, even Fleur wouldn't be able to get the numerical value of Triwizard Cup to tell her where it is right now, no matter how many circumstantial matrices she plugged into it. Circumferential. Matrices? In arithmancy, determining the numerary value of a name is only the first step. Circumstantial matrices are what you use to turn 3 or 1,965 into concrete, practicable information. Isaac Newton said that a good arithmetic could calculate the whole history of the world, from the first day to the last year, from the oldest and greatest star to the meanest atom of fire, but they'd need three quarters of eternity to do it. For anything with a deadline, arithmancy had its limits. Hermione looked into the mist a little longer, decided against using the wind-blowing jinx again, and looked up at the tallest tree within her range of vision, which rose straight up and, she hoped, beyond the mist. Like many bookish children, 
Hermione had climbed very few trees in her youth, no more than zero, and fewer than that if it were possible. "'Dimitri, can you climb a tree?' There was silence for a moment, and then the emptiness beside her replied, "'I could try a climb, but not while I am wearing a cloak such as this. I might slip, or it might tear.' She circled the tree, considering the branches, the trunk, and her own wand— Dimitri could levitate her, except for the fact that she was being observed, and her audience would know just as well that what they were seeing would be impossible for Hermione to accomplish on her own. Perhaps she could levitate Dimitri, but it wasn't clear exactly where he was, and she might just as easily lift the invisibility cloak from his shoulders. Transfiguring a solid disk from the earth and levitating that while someone stood upon it ran into the same problems. Controlled self-propulsion through the air was practically impossible no matter how many additional factors she might add. Besides, if she lifted Dimitri on a platform, then she might still reveal him if someone wondered why she was lifting an empty platform into the air. Hermione? Shush, she muttered. I'm thinking. On the other hand, uncontrolled self-propulsion was a possibility, though the ascending charm was a little more complicated than Hermione was comfortable with. At least at this size, and no, she was overcomplicating this. The simple approach, that idea about climbing the tree, wasn't bad. With methodical strokes of her wand, Hermione began to transfigure the tree. After a few minutes, one side of the trunk had been engraved with rectangular handholds, into which her feet would fit just as easily. She might not be able to climb a tree, but by God she could use a ladder. Hermione went up the tree. The mist was indeed lighter up here, but not as much as Hermione would have liked— no matter which direction she looked, the treetops faded in the distance as though she were perched upon an island in the clouds. Perhaps she would see the edge if it were closer, but she might well have been looking at an illusion. Hermione descended the ladder, then untransfigured her handholds. "'Where are we?' Dimitri asked, and she shrugged. "'I'm fairly certain that we're in the Forbidden Forest.' "'Did we not know this already?' "'We did,' Hermione said, holding in a sigh." It wasn't all bad, though. The four-point spell had given her one bearing to go by, so Hermione roughly knew where Hogwarts probably was, somewhere southeast or just plain south, unless she was very close, the way that the forest sort of bent around the castle. If she were able to find an edge, then she could start to draw a map of the forest and assign landmarks, assuming that the trees and stones weren't bewitched to move around when she wasn't looking. Just to be sure that the one direction she'd gotten so far wasn't going to slip away, Hermione cast the four-point spell again. She sighed, but now from relief. If the spell was being interfered with, then that interference was, so far, unchanging, which was almost as good as having no interference at all. Just knowing the direction of north was only so helpful, so Hermione set out to find something by which she could keep her bearings more exactly. Once more, she held her wand in a loose grip. Virgula Aqui, Hermione encanted, and this time the wand moved as it ought to. It was less of a triumph than another step along a path with many more steps to come. Liquid, especially flowing liquid, was easier to locate by means of the dowsing charm, and water was the simplest of all. If Hermione couldn't find a stream that was open to the air, then she might as well turn in her wand and be a muggle. Anyway, it was progress, and progress felt nice. It wasn't long before Hermione could hear the sound of running water, and then just a little further on she was able to see the stream. Again, she confirmed the veracity of the four-point spell, then checked that against the stream, which was flowing almost completely in the opposite direction. 
The water is going south, which means that... Hermione trailed off in thought. She still didn't have enough information for that to mean anything. We are very much into the woods, Dimitri commented. Huddle? There is water that goes south near Hogwarts, but I do not think it is this one. I do not remember this place. She'd almost forgotten that Dimitri had gone skulking through the Forbidden Forest at least once before. With that invisibility cloak, it was anyone's guess how much time he had spent here. How much have you explored? Not much, Dimitri said, but more than you. Perhaps close to a, how do you say, fear the delight. Nine hundred times ten of measurement of arm, only not whole arm, just... Dimitri lapsed into stumped silence. Eventually, they were able to figure out that Dimitri had explored a square mile or so, a British mile, because what passed for a mile at Durmstrang was seven times longer. That's something, at least, Hermione said, and she transfigured a stone and a twig into a writing slate and a thin piece of chalk. The water comes from somewhere, and its source is as good a landmark as any. As much to think aloud to herself as to keep Dimitri informed, Hermione continued to talk as she walked upstream. There are eight, maybe ten square miles of forest, longer than it is wide. Worst case, once I know what we're looking for, I can build a grid and search for the cup block by block. That would take very long, Dimitri observed. Maybe a couple of weeks, Hermione admitted. The cup was not very big, and the forbidden forest was thick and dark with trees, to say nothing of the mist. Weeks? yelped Dimitri. I am not, I have not, I... That is very long, no? Hermione didn't like the idea of a multi-week camping trip either, but the full moon would rise by then, so Dimitri had good reason to sound worried and not just annoyed. I don't expect to take anywhere near that long, though, Hermione assured him. It's just an upper bound. We'll figure out how to cut that in half, and in half again, and then we'll find the trouble's a cut before we know it. I sh should certainly hope so, Dimitri said, sounding shaken. I would like to finish it before nightfall, I think. I'd like that too, but I can't make any promises, Hermione said, almost grumbling. They gave us lunch and dinner, and they gave me a half-hour lead, so I don't think that this will be wrapped up as quickly as the first two tasks. On the other hand, the judges couldn't have expected it to take much longer than that, could they? Hermione hoped that was the case, but regardless, she wasn't going to wait around to act until Victor and Fleur arrived. There was no telling how the Forbidden Forest had been bewitched, beyond the obvious mist, it was entirely possible that the waterways might change their course, at least for the duration of the third task, so as Hermione and Dimitri walked, she left a trail of bright white stones, flat but as long as her hand. It was a simple thing to transfigure them from the detritus of the forest, but a small strain of her time, as much from boredom as the mental exercise. Every so often they doubled back to make sure that the stones hadn't been disturbed, and along the way Hermione continued to sketch out her map. The first novelty that they encountered was a long, sinuous track, like an oak trunk had emerged from the stream and slithered off. It was not what Hermione would have liked for their first novelty, or any novelty at all. It was ominous. "'Perhaps it is uh, the basilisk,' Dimitri suggested. "'Don't be ridiculous,' Hermione snapped." As if she hadn't been thinking the same thing, Riddle isn't completely insane. Besides, she added, a little unsure that she had just spoken truth. Madame Maxime would never let him feel the basilisk. What else could make a track like that? 
I think that there's a kind of anachondrin Mesoamerica around this size, but I don't remember what they're called. Or it could be a very large ashwinder, charmed not to set fire to the trees, Hermione suggested, and she transfigured another white stone. But we should obviously be careful about where we look. I don't suppose that Durmstrang taught you a charm that would let you navigate without sight? They did not. And at the first sign of trouble, Hermione decided, we turn around and lob rocks behind us as we run away. I do not think that would be very survivable. If there's a goddamn basilisk in this forest and it wants to eat us, then I don't know what we're going to do to dissuade it, Hermione admitted. Climb a tree? I don't know whether it could climb as well, but if not, then I wouldn't be surprised to learn that it could knock the tree down. Let us just avoid this place. Agreed, Hermione said, and they took the stream less basilisked. As things turned out, that made all the difference, for only a few minutes later Hermione saw a glinting in the mist, a subtle blue light that winked in and out like an irregular star. Demetri, do you see that?' she asked. But before he could say anything, Hermione barreled forward. "'Up there, there's something in the trees.' "'Yes, I see it. What there? I think that might be a bluebell flame,' Hermione said. Hinky punks created fires to hunt or simply to play.' The difference between the two depended a lot on how the Hinky Punk felt at any given moment, but their fires were orange, red, even white, but she hadn't heard of one that cast a blue light. It was true that East Asian villas, particularly in Japan, were known to use fire to the same end and had much greater control over their fire, and Riddle's choice of judge in the second task implied outreach in that region, but it still seemed unlikely. "'Perhaps it is Victor,' Dimitri said hopefully." and then more ambiguously, "'Or is it Fleur?' "'But why would they be in the trees?' Hermione asked. They approached, as swiftly as they could without sacrificing caution, and as they got closer, more details resolved. Other colors appeared, greens and reds and yellows and pinks, then disappeared, shifted, warbled, and there was the impression of movement— quick vanishing flashes of eyes and spots and stripes and patches, abstract shapes in the mist, limbs that seemed like curling snakes or twining vines, scything in and out of view. Then, in the mottled sunlight and twinkling blue, a patch of red and brown resolved, for just a moment, into more than just an impression, into a shape, a thing, a... "'It's a tree-octopus!' Hermione gasped under her breath, and for a moment the movement stopped, the colors froze, the blue light itself ceased to move, became a glowing key, and then the movement resumed, a great dance in the branches. She could make out the dancers now, long and many-limbed acrobats, as boneless and elegant in their arboreal movements as a frond of kelp in the sea, turning and twisting in on themselves like fabric, weirdly silent save for their rustling of branches. Watching them was nearly hypnotic. "'I have never seen such things before,' Dimitri said, his voice full of awe as they swung and leapt from branches like huge and tentacled squirrels. "'You said that they are three octopuses?' "'Octopodes,' Hermione corrected. "'But yes, they aren't native to Britain, so they must have been imported from Cascadia, I think. I'm pretty sure that these are Pacific tree octopodes.' I mean, look at their size, at the span of their arms. They must be as large as I am. 
The glowing key, thrown by one octopus to another, soared through the canopy like a shooting star, and Hermione remembered that this was not just a class in care of magical creatures. They're very interested in that key, but I'm certain that we're going to need it, so... She took aim with her wand, but the summoning spell that she cast failed to retrieve the key. Stupefy, she tried instead. But the octopus with the key dodged the light of her spell with a movement that, fast though it might have been, nevertheless managed to feel lazy. Hermione cast an incarceration jinx, and the octopus dropped this time, entangled in a rope that twisted like its own tentacles. But another grabbed the key, and the felled octopus liberated itself, one free limb multiplying into several, slithering out as the octopus contorted and nearly melted free of its bonds. In her frustration, Hermione even tried the woodsman's curse, though she took care not to aim close to any octopodes, but she needn't have bothered. They moved like leaves in the wind, and the tree fell like a lumbering giant, with a fall as delayed as it was loud. Spell after spell proved futile, and the swinging octopodes flashed colors quickly, brightly, and rhythmically. Hermione had the distinct feeling that they were laughing at her. She thought to cast the Ascending Charm. It was the closest that Hermione could get to flying without a broom, but it had several downsides. It was less purposeful levitation than a kind of undirected propulsion through the air, straight up like a balloon. Another drawback to the Ascending Charm was that it was temporary, more like a jump than flight. But when her acceleration ceased and she began to fall back down, Hermione could always cast the charm again so that she would bounce upwards again in the air. Hermione cast the spell and rocketed into the branches far faster than the Octopodes could leap or clamber, smashing through twigs and small branches, and was nearly able to grab the key with her own hand. Then, too focused on the key, Hermione found herself sprawled on the ground, her left arm bent in a direction that it was never meant to go, before she even realized that she'd hit a rather large tree. The pain was intense but somehow foreign, as if it were happening to someone else. Dimitri, with all his panicked noise, seemed more hurt than she was. I don't suppose that you have much experience with the bone-mending charm, Hermione gritted. She did, of course, but Vicente had been understandably uninterested in breaking her arm so that she could practice on it, and healing someone else's arm was a different beast from healing your own. The process was constrained, the wand work was awkward, and it was hard to concentrate when your arm hurt so much. But Dimitri came through for her. I do, he said, and try as you can to move your wand. The process was painstaking and painful, for Dimitri was no meta-wizard, but Hermione couldn't complain, for she preferred slow progress to a mistake that might vanish her bones entirely. While he worked, Hermione tried to think of something else, of how foolish she had been, of how she might yet beat those mangy mollusks, anything but how her arm felt right now, and then he finished. And she set her wand aside, brought her knees up beneath her chin, and continued to think. Initially, Hermione considered whether it might be possible to dodge any need for the key at all. Any kind of unlocking charm that she knew of would probably be protected against, but if she could just get a good enough look at the key, then perhaps she could transfigure a forgery. If only the Octopodes would stop moving it around. However, it also would be all too easy to have enchanted the key to match its door— wherever that might be, so that a mere physical duplicate wouldn't work at all, how could she get the Octopodes to stay still? What did she know about tree Octopodes? And then a verse of poetry occurred to her. 
one of countless verses from her translation homework. Where near the shore a thriving olive grows, with swelling berries and luxuriant boughs, she said, the octopus ascends. What? It's from the Halutica by Opian. The point is that most semi-arboreal octopodes are omnivorous frugivores. I haven't studied it in depth. I'm not a magizoologist, but in ancient Greece, the inkfishers would trail olive branches behind their boats to lure octopodes into their traps. Olives are deadly, depending on where you can find them. I don't know what they eat in Cascadia or if these are even the Pacific tree octopus or just uh, another species that I'm misidentifying. Like I said, I'm not a magizoologist, but they'll probably enjoy fruit, Hermione said. And with epiphanic speed, she uncovered her traveling basket. What are you doing? Triocotopodes are very intelligent creatures, Hermione explained as she took out an apple. But they're still animals. They'll be motivated by food. With a prod from her wand, the apple duplicated. She did it again. Help me with this, Dimitri. He did. And the two of them soon had a large pile of acceptably convincing apples. Each one, of course, had only a fraction of the nourishing qualities of a non-multiplied apple, but this was unimportant for the baiting process. The octopodes began to gather around, clearly interested, their movements slowing and becoming more focused, their colors changing in a blockier, slower profusion of shapes and patterns. Were they having a conversation? Their eyes could move independently from each other, but each seemed to have at least one eye on the apples. Good. Now to reel them in. Hermione tossed an apple into the trees, and the octopodes scrambled to catch it, reminding her of nothing so much as pigeons chasing crumbs in the streets of Paris. She threw another and got a similar reaction, but the third she tossed lower, and the fourth just into a small bush at eye level. The octopodes, including the one with the key, swung lower and lower. With the basic theory confirmed to work, Hermione took a short breath to transfigure more apples. There seems to be five octopodes in this troop, and they seemed to each keep at least two tentacles anchored as they moved, which meant she might need thirty duplicate apples to satiate them. The octopodes flashed with excitement as she worked, and Hermione felt rather proud of herself as she straightened up and began first tossing apples into the low branches, then rolling them to the bases of the trees. That's it, she whispered to herself as the tree-dwelling mollusks carefully descended the trunks and reached for the apples on the ground. Come on closer. It seemed they needed more limbs to support themselves on the ground than to climb, so Hermione hadn't even exhausted her apple supply when the key-holding octopus finally had its free limbs full of apples. The octopus with the key paused in the low-hanging branches, almost as if considering its options. It flashed several bright blocks of color, then extended its arm and threw the key away. The key arced, gleaming through the air, then came to rest in the moss about thirty feet away. Hermione tried to summon it again, but the key remained where it lay, and it was just as resistant to levitation, so Hermione walked over to get it. No sooner had Hermione bent down and picked up the key than she heard Dimitri exclaim in surprise behind her, and she turned around to see an octopus, still hanging from a branch, grab her remaining pile of apples put them into her abandoned basket, then take the basket by the handle and make an underhanded, under-tentacled, throw to another octopus further up in the trees. Immediately that recipient became a site of congregation by the others. As it held itself aloft by two tentacles and dangled the basket with another, the remaining five set to work, 
ripping off the basket's lid and delving into its contents at the same time. Some tentacles snapped the lid in two against a heavy branch. Another octopus stole one half to hold an inspection for itself, and the other was hurled like a discus to the rapidly shifting colored amusement of the other octopodes, who devoured pie and cheese and bread and all the apples, eating messily but catching fragments with their grasping limbs, so that not one crumb hit the forest floor. Another unfurled the sleeping bag, which tore against branches as the octopus darted and flown between the trees. When all was eaten, destroyed, or both, at least two octopodes tested the sleeping bag's edibility, they dropped what remained and left. Hermione couldn't shake the feeling that she had been outplayed by a bunch of beasts. She had gotten what she had set out to obtain, but perhaps in the most humiliating manner possible. Beside her, Hermione knew Dimitri's position by his approaching clap. Excellent. Tres excellent. It's très, Hermione said. And with a series of wand movements, she began to repair what damage could be repaired. The Octopodes had stolen a chunk of her slate and all of her chalk, but she mostly remembered the map that had been drawn so far, and it wasn't that hard to get the sleeping bag back in working order, even if it was never going to look pretty again. She was lucky, Hermione supposed, that the Octopodes had done their mischief so quickly. They had damaged her basket's lid, but not ruined the basket itself, whose value for holding and carrying things was weighed greater than the evident joy they got from pulling things apart. Let's keep going, Hermione said, and they did just that, returning to the water in order to continue their journey, now more northeast than northwest. Every few minutes, Hermione transfigured another white rock. Mindful now of the possibility of octopodian sabotage, the cleverer the beast, the greater its capacity for mischief, Hermione enchanted them to give a sharp, quick pain when touched. She thought about making them bigger, too, or impossible to lift or break, but she had to pace herself, just as if she were studying for an exam. Contrary to some poetic turns of phrase, it wasn't possible to run out of magic. That would be rather like physically running out of brain matter while writing an essay, but it was still possible to tire out, as it were. Epuisé, as Fleur liked to say whenever Hermione couldn't write another word. Not long after, Dimitri said something. Hermione hadn't entirely caught it. She was adding another point of interest to her slate with transfigured chalk and double-checking her bearings, about Thestrals. Despite the pointlessness of such an exercise, Hermione looked around her. She saw nothing, of course. She had seen a dead body only a few months ago, and then an inferius later, but not the moment of death itself. "'You can see them?' "'Yeah,' Dimitri said. "'You do not?' he asked a moment later, and Hermione shook her head. "'Should we be worried?' "'Under normal circumstances, Hermione wouldn't be worried by a herd of Thestrals. "'They were opportunistic predators. "'I do not think so, but maybe do not look so wildly around again,' Dimitri said. "'Instead, uh, look at... do you know clock directions?' Clock directions? Six o'clock is behind you? Oh, okay, Hermione nodded, glad that she understood something that Dimitri was going on about. Look at eight o'clock, then up at threes, Dimitri said. The space where Dimitri had directed her eyes was bare of anything but a few thick branches. As she watched, one branch might have trembled, but that could have been her imagination. Am I supposed to be looking at a thestral? Yes, look not so high up. 
Yes, that should work. They are not so interested now, I do not think. We can keep going. What was that about? Victor taught me about them. Thestrals prey on the young. They do not like to be seen. Dimitri was still relaying what he knew of Thestrals. There was a type of invisibility cloak, useful mostly only as a novelty, which could be made from Thestral leather when they came upon an islet on the river. It was unremarkable, only another feature of the Sylvan geography except for the black tower that was set upon it. Positioned elsewhere in the thick forest, Hermione might not have seen the tower unless she had bumped into it or continued to scout from the treetops, but the river set the trees back far enough that, looking from the water's edge, she could see the tower in all its austere, ebon beauty, darkness beyond darkness, deep enough that Hermione wondered whether it might still be visible even at night. Hermione chopped a smallish tree with the woodsman's curse, then levitated it to the shoreline, where she transfigured the tree into a dinghy. She climbed in, and, after Dimitri said he had done the same, touched her wand to the surface of the water and started to propel the boat. Hopefully, nobody would question why she had made a boat that was big enough for two. When they reached the tower at last, it was possible to see that the tower had three faces, like a Toblerone of darkest chocolate. On each face was a door, and above each door was the crest of a school, Bobaton, Durmstrang, and finally Hogwarts, and in gold lettering was inscribed the school's motto, Draco dormien nunquam titilandus. Hermione consulted her chalk slate map, then looked up again at the tower. Damn it. What? Keeping in mind that I'm not a cartographer and that my map very well might be wrong, I think if we had just walked north from the start, then we would have ended up right here, facing this exact door. Hermione looked at the map again, then tilted it so that Dimitri could, maybe if he were still on that side of her, see what she had drawn. In fact, this might be the dead center of the forest, or as close as you can get in a rectangular sort of blob. What does that mean? It means that getting the Triwizard Cup won't be as easy as turning this key and walking inside, Hermione said. I'll bet you anything that there's something else inside that we're going to have to deal with. Then let us set up the camp, Dimitri said. If they're wandering out in the forest, better that we not be wandering as well, but that we stay where we are, where we will be found, so that we can all go down together. I want to at least see what we're going to deal with, Hermione said. It was impossible to see the keyhole, which was, after all, just a hollow space in what looked very much like an absence in itself. As she ran her hands across the door, she made an unfortunate discovery— Shit. There was not one keyhole on her door, but three. We will do the waiting now. Hermione thought it over for a moment. No. But we have one key already, and surely Victor and Fleur will find keys as well. If we wait, then we will be able to go in together. I know that, but I don't want to wait for them. At long last you intend to win the tournament for yourself? No, but what if they get more than one key, Dimitri? I don't... I can't... I'll just be a little tag-along in the end, unless I do as much as they do. Getting the first key had almost been an accident. Besides the two of us, that means that each key is only worth half as much when you think about it. I don't think... I'm not going to wait to be saved. 
Hermione knew where the end point was now, and she could always get back to it later, but she couldn't help but feel that waiting here for Fleur and Victor would be as good as giving up. They did set up camp in the end, but after they left the islet, Hermione made it a point to shrink the boat, a little tricky after such an exerting day, and pocket it, then walk twenty minutes downstream before they encamped. It was a petty thing, maybe, but now that she determined to get those keys on her own, the idea was sinking its roots into her brain, and Hermione didn't want to be discovered by accident, not until she'd gotten at least a second key. The Triactopides had left them without any food, and neither Hermione nor Dmitri had any real wilderness survival experience. Rector Karkaroff thought it would encourage us to overconfidence and wonder, Dmitri explained, and did not want to be bothered by letters from the grieving parents. But she was a witch, she was a wizard. They each had a functioning wand. Surely that had to count for something. Well, are they safe? Hermione said, looking down again at the fairy ring of mushrooms that Dmitri had been mulling over for the past several minutes. They were mostly white, but the caps had brown undersides, and some of the mushrooms were a little yellow here and there. Her stomach growled, as if to suggest to her that its hunger would be a sufficient antidote for any potential toxin. Dimitri made another sniffing sound, and not for the first time. Hermione wondered whether he was shoving the mushroom up his nose. "'I am beautiful, sure,' Dimitri finally said. "'But beautiful, sure, is not good enough when it comes to mushrooms.' Hermione considered transfiguring them, but if they were poisonous, then they would probably continue to partake in the mephitic essence after they had been transfigured. And even if Hermione were a fully trained alchemist, she didn't have any of the necessary materials to effect a change to their essential qualities. They were in a forest, though, and there were a few things that trees were useful for. According to Dimitri, maples weren't the only tree that you could get syrup from— under his direction, Hermione transfigured a tap into the side of a birch tree and placed a transfigured bowl beneath it, and then scraped away its neighbor's bark with careful cutting charms. Beneath bark is cambium, I am meaning cambium, which is useful and full of the nutrition, Dimitri explained. I thought that you said you hadn't gotten any wilderness training, Hermione remarked. As she pulled away another strip of cambium, it was a dark, thready material, like badly-pressed papyrus. "'We have not, but they are making us eat bark flour anyway,' Dimitri said. "'In order to be making strong bones like the tree trunk, and tough skin like bark.' Hermione collected pine needles as well, as she dimly remembered that they could be made into tea or something like that, and twigs and handfuls of broader leaves. On their way back, Dimitri spotted a blackcurrant bush. At least they were pretty sure those were blackcurrants— and they mutually decided to pass up on a tress of feral tomatoes that had climbed their vines around one sickly-looking tree. They were a gorgeous, mouth-watering scarlet, but that vividness came in part from their being Austrianized dampier tomatoes, and Hermione didn't fancy being exsanguinated from the inside by a fruit, no matter how delicious that fruit might be. When they returned, Hermione's little bucket had collected only a little sap— she sighed and nudged it with her foot, then said, "'Shouldn't there be more?' "'Shrug,' Dimitri replied, which Hermione thought was as good a reply as any. After she scoured clear a patch of dry fruit and piled up some medium-sized branches, Hermione lit a magical fire, 
then brought back two transfigured bowls full of water from the nearby stream. Into one she dumped the pine needles, and into the other she put the cambium, and then she set them both atop the campfire. While they cooked, Hermione transfigured her collected leaves into thin wafers of bread, which were dry and tasteless, but the best that she could do under the circumstances. They would do no more to sustain her than untransfigured leaves, but they were marginally more appetizing and would fill her stomach, while the berries, cambium, and pine needles would, probably, give her the nutrients that she needed. It wasn't exactly a balanced meal, but it was getting too dark to see except by wand light, and they could figure out the rest tomorrow. After everything was ready, Hermione wrapped some of it in a transfigured cloth, then cast a disillusionment charm upon it. She would cast the same on herself before she went to bed, and when in the morning it was clear that the food was no longer there, anyone watching would hopefully assume that Hermione had taken a midnight snack while she wasn't visible. The pine needle tea was astringent and a little citrusy, but that made it by far the best thing that either of them consumed that night. As she drank her second cup, sipping slowly so as to make it last longer, Hermione examined the strange tokens that she'd been given earlier that day, thinking back to the goblin silver ball that she'd expelled so many months earlier. On one side a tree, on the other two concentric circles, which Hermione interpreted as an abstract seed. What are you doing? Looking at these coins again. Look at the design, Hermione said, and she unstrung one, then lifted it into the firelight, flipping it so that she showed one side and then the other. A seed on one side and a fully grown tree on the other. That has to mean something. She flipped the coin over again in her hand. I think that I'm supposed to plant them. Really? Dimitri said. His voice made clear his disbelief. I don't have anything to lose, Hermione said. With a little bit of wand work, Hermione gouged a series of holes out of the ground, then placed a coin in each one and piled the dirt back on. She waited for a while and nothing happened. Nothing is happening, Dimitri observed. I was just thinking that, Hermione replied irritably, and she regarded the dirt with a fierce stare as if she could will the coins to do whatever it was that they were supposed to do. I think that I'll leave them overnight. She looked off in Dimitri's direction, or at least in the direction that he seemed to be. Really, you think that will do anything? If it doesn't, then I can just dig them out again tomorrow morning, can't I? Only if Niffler does not get first? Then I'll ward them against a Niffler, Hermione said, and she did just that. She didn't know a spell against Nifflers, not exactly, but she could lay down a caterwauling charm to scream if anything bigger than a mouse disturbed the dirt. Will you leave them in the ground in the morning if nothing has happened to them? Hermione frowned. Maybe, but we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. She cast a second caterwauling charm, this one to awaken them both if a bear or other large animal strolled by— and then disillusioned herself and settled down in her battered, mended sleeping bag. It was terribly uncomfortable, but she was terribly tired as well. Sleep took her before she noticed its approach. For the full text of this and other stories by the same author, visit the archive of our own page of Call Me Saltisside. The music is Amon Ra by Dayswitch under a Creative Commons license.
with assistance from 1T1. If you would like to commission me to record a story, voiceover, or character, please get in touch with me using the contact information on my website, which is located at sangabrielvo.com. And there you can find other stories that I've read, as well as links to my Patreon page, to which I hope you consider subscribing to support me, and my Discord server, where I record things live for your enjoyment. And finally, as always, thank you for listening.